It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this edition featuring Labour MP Clive Lewis. Uh, Clive uh, has a fascinating uh, life story, having served in Afghanistan, having worked at the BBC, uh, been uh, the previous Labour government's uh, one of their national black role models, uh, and is now a Labour MP. Uh, and has risen to prominence very quickly, only elected in 2015. He's made himself one of the most visible members uh, of the Corbyn era. Um, now, this interview happened um, just a few days after Clive had been in the news uh, for using language that he himself accepted was inappropriate and uh, apologised for um, at the Labour Party conference. I'm sure you'll have seen the story. We talk about it at length um, in the context, of course, of another Labour MP who's, who's in trouble for comments they made before they were a member of Parliament, um, Jared O'Mara. So the context of this interview, really pertinent to, to a lot of the issues of the time about offence, about... Um, the tone of public debate about the sort of things we should and shouldn't apologise for and, and being mindful of the language we use. Uh, and Clive gives uh, a, a fascinating insight um, into what it's like to be a Member of Parliament in this era, uh, his take on uh, his own sort of brush with this, with this uh, type of news, and a, a, a kind of a context, really, to it all. It's a fascinating interview, and he's led really quite a remarkable life and, and talks... Um, in a very interesting manner about serving in a war that, in hindsight, perhaps he... Uh, maybe I'm not even sure I would say he fully disagrees with, but certainly uh, British foreign policy is something that, as a man of the left, he's had an issue with. Um, we cover so many things, uh, including the internal tensions in the Labour Party, Brexit, Article 50. It's all in there. It's, it's wide-ranging, and Clive is fascinating, illuminating. Uh, and you can see how he's managed to make a name for himself uh, very quickly. Um, I was obviously very grateful that he did it. Uh, I know that other politicians in a similar circumstance would have chosen not to do the interview. Um, so I was uh, very grateful that he that he honoured the booking. Uh, and as a result, the night was uh, lent that extra bit of electricity. Um, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And, uh, well, without further ado, here is Clive Lewis. Well, with a bit of stand-up first, but... In, uh, in, in, in difficult circumstances, friends, a very abusive tone being set out there in our, in our politics. A lot of abuse flying about, you may have read in the papers this week, uh, none more so uh, than from Boris Johnson uh, when he launched the deeply, and I'm going to have to repeat the phrase, I'm sorry if this offends anyone, the supine, oh fuck, what was it? The <laughs> fucking hell, the supine, Prutu, plasmic, invertebrate, jellies! Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. He's used this before. It's not the only insult that he's thrown about Boris. He gets away with it because he basically does it in language that no one else can understand. So people don't know quite what he's saying. But of course, for the election, he called uh, Jeremy Corbyn a mutton-headed mugwump. <laughs> Again, you can't be offended by it. No one knows what the fuck it means. <laughs> Boris basically just has a random word 
insult generator in his head. Uh, so throw out a letter, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a sort of Boris Johnson randomly uh, generated insult. See you, you cat-headed kiggle wimp. <laughs> you... <laughs> you aardvark-inspired angle what? <laughs> David Davis today at the exiting the European Union Select Committee said that if negotiations go down to the 59th minute of the 11th hour, at least it'll be exciting. <laughs> That's not the sort of thing I get off on, David, to be honest. I think he's confusing exciting with scary. Oh, we're almost about to hit the iceberg. This will be a laugh, won't it? Not exciting at all. It's a, what sort of adrenaline junkie is he? The Tories is a party you're in trouble, actually, for trying to manipulate uh, polling and get around spending limits by saying that uh, phone calls they, they used to target voters were actually opinion polling and therefore didn't fall within the remit, or indeed the spending rules, uh, that party political campaigning uh, would fall into. And the regulator said, actually, some of the questions they asked went beyond the bounds of simple polling method. So uh, I researched this and I found some of the questions. See if you can spot the questions which, which the regulator says cross the line. So the first, here's some standard ones. How old are you? Um, what is the combined income of your household? Pretty standard stuff. On a scale of one to five, how sneaky do you think Jeremy Corbyn is? <laughs> some of them are quite hard to decipher. A recent study found that men with beards were more likely to wet the bed, drive without insurance, and steal money from relatives. What scares you most about men with beards? <laughs> and this is a classic. Without trying to influence you at the next election, are you more likely to vote for Theresa May or the anti-Semite who will crash the economy? <laughs> it's quite hard, to, quite hard to unpick how political they were getting, actually. Um, uh, are you, oh, well, this was one, uh, uh, are you or is anyone you know a supine protoplasmic inverse? <laughs> <laughs> so the Tories are in trouble. Obviously, the, the, the main story about trouble is, is Jared O'Mara, the uh, current uh, MP uh, for Sheffield Hallam. We'll see if that story develops. But he's got himself into uh, trouble for things that he said about 15 years ago online. Uh, for the uninitiated uh, he, uh, at the time. I mean, he was talking about Pop Idol back then, Michelle McManus, so that gives you an idea of how long ago it was. But uh, he said that she only won because she was fat. He's had a go at... He's used all sorts of horrible language, racist and sexist and homophobic. Uh, and he also said uh, in one online post that it'd be funny if Jamie Cullum uh, was sodomised by his piano. His defence of his behaviour, and, and this was many years in the past, but nevertheless, the things that he said... Uh, Really quite horrendous. Uh, his defence was that football culture turned him into a bitter person. <laughs> yeah? But usually, Jared, football culture does turn you into a bitter person. Usually against referees. <laughs> Manchester United, Leeds United, Liverpool and Derby County uh, in reverse order. Doesn't usually turn you into a bitter person towards Jamie Cullum and Michelle McManus. <laughs> I can't believe we lost 2-1 again. What was the goalkeeper thinking? You know I am responsible, that cunt Cullum. <laughs> Fucking McManus. When is she going to show her face at Anfield and own up to what she's done to this club? <laughs> <laughs> but some of the things he said are horrendous. Uh, uh, condemnation from all sides. Lots of Labour MPs have queued up to condemn uh, Jared. A lot of Tories have. Godfrey, Bl uh, Godfrey Bloom uh, waded into the row and said he would like to offer him a job as head of diversity. Uh, Corbyn, of course, is going to be on Gogglebox. This was announced today. Jeremy Corbyn's going to do Gogglebox uh, for Stand Up to Cancer. And uh, he's going to do it with a mystery guest. Who I hope is Diane Abbott. <laughs> and hope they're forced to watch rom-coms and wildlife exclusively sex scenes. 
fucking love to see his face, John. Oh, fucking, why did I sign up to this? I mean, if you're going to have politicians on, on Gogglebox, go global, get Donald Trump on there. That's the person you want to see. By the way, I always watch TV, by the way. The sort of stuff I want to see, you can get on TV. You can only get it over the internet, and only then when you really search for it. I don't know if you know that, by the way, but I do. Get him on there. Uh, UKIP have a new leader. Henry Bolton is the new leader of UKIP. Uh, very exciting. Uh, he is uh, he's the new leader. He's changed the logo. Uh, they've, got rid of, they've got rid of the pound as their logo. It's sort of ironic, given how long they've campaigned to keep the actual pound. But they've, they've dropped the pound and they've replaced it with a lion. Now, the problem with the logo is that the, the cartoon lion looks almost identical to the logo for the Premier League. And when he was asked about this, the chief exec of UKIP said, no, there won't be any copyright issues uh, because we are happy to be associated with the Premier League. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be that way around, mate. <laughs> A lion, of course, an animal native to Africa. The fucking... Although it is an endangered species, so I suppose there is, there is some logic to it. But... What Henry has revealed, and this is really telling us, that the UKIP leader doesn't get paid anymore. He will not be paid for being UKIP leader. We gave an interview this week where he said, he's got to sell his house in order to fund his, his current leadership. And uh, he said his wife, and he used this great phrase, said, oh, my wife's fine. She's nervously supportive. <laughs> That's an oxymoron, isn't it? That's like saying, oh, yeah, she's, uh, she's forcibly gentle. <laughs> or she's, she's enthusiastically lethargic. <laughs> or she's intellectually UKIP. <laughs> it's going to be homeless. I mean, fucking hell, is it really worth being you? You're going to see Henry Bolton on the streets with a little sign saying, help, hungry, hungry and racist. <laughs> He gave an interview where he said he could chase and kill a badger with his bare hands. <laughs> Maybe he's working up to that line, who knows? He said he could do it with his bare hands. You just think, I mean, it might be coming handy when he's homeless. He won't need any food donations. Fucking eye up a tree of squirrels and fucking deal with them. Not the only nationalists uh, in trouble, though, UKIP. Uh, there have been leadership rumblings against Leanne Wood, uh, the leader of Plaid Cymru, and she was interviewed on the BBC Daily Politics this week. It's come up with a great phrase. They said, uh, well, are you concerned about these challenges? And she went, do I look worried? <laughs> no, but you do look overwhelmed. <laughs> the least competent leader of any party I think I've ever seen, Leanne Wood. Do you remember during the election, she was asked by Victoria Derbyshire, so what do you think of Theresa May? And she went, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> it's not a pop quiz. Where does the Queen live? Oh, I know this. Oh, bloody hell. Somewhere in London, innit? No wonder Theresa May didn't want to do the leadership debate. She remember in 2015, she looked absolute. Oh, you've been in London all day. It's fucking massive, innit? <laughs> totally overwhelmed. She was just that thing where she was straight down the camera, but she can't go more than ten words without looking at her notes. Hello, I'm Leanne Wood from Plate Cymru, and I'm here representing... Well, yes. <laughs> well, the truth, I didn't want any part of it. But uh, she's the, probably the least effective nationalist leader. Nicola Sturgeon, uh, arguably the most effective, uh, currently having to stay in a hotel in Edinburgh because Butte House needs renovations. She's genuinely staying in a hotel. A good job it wasn't during the festival. It cost a fucking fortune. But this is my own personal beef. But, uh, but she's, she's, she's stuck in there. You just think you cannot have technically a world leader 
basically turning into Alan Partridge. <laughs> I guarantee Nicola Sturgeon with a month of vision, it's not a hotel, it's a travel tavern. <laughs> or you can eat from a 12-inch plate. Look what I got, 18 inches. Bring it in myself. <laughs> I mean, if I was the staff at that hotel, I would wind her up day in, day out. Would you like a wake-up call, Nicola? Yeah. Ditch the idea for a second referendum. <laughs> Seems you've run up uh, quite a big bill, but enough of Scotland's deficit. We can uh, <laughs> take a card for the rest. I'm afraid the Barnet formula does not cover room service. <laughs> it was a little bit prissy, wasn't it? Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a phenomenal guest in the second half, uh, who I'm very excited uh, to interview. Someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Um, so we are going to have a brief break. Grab your glasses and uh, have a drink at the bar or go to the toilet or whatever. As always, you are a phenomenal audience. Um, and tonight... I really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> a politician never does that. They're full of shit. <laughs> so it's great to see you all. And uh, we'll be back in the second half with Clive Lewis. But now, I'm Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the uh, second half of the political party. Tonight's uh, guest, uh, who I'm very excited uh, about interviewing. Someone I've wanted to interview uh, for a very long time. Um, I've tried as far as I can uh, over the almost five years now to get guests from across the political spectrum and across the sort of spectrum of experience. We've had a former Prime Minister here, we've had Nigel Farage, people are all sort of um, uh, denominations really. Someone that we haven't had uh, really since George Galloway is a proper person of the, of the, of the left in, in, the, in the sense that we know it now. Uh, and there is a, obviously a new left emerging under Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party that until tonight, really, we haven't had an insight on, uh, on this show. So I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to have tonight's guest on. He is someone who, in many circles, is regarded as a future Labour leader and as a result by many people as a potential future Prime Minister. Uh, given the news... Uh, of the last few days, I am delighted that he, that he decided... No, no, I don't mean it like that. <laughs> I'm delighted that he decided to do it because other people might have chosen to pull out. So it is testament to him and it is a great credit to him that he didn't let me down and didn't let all of us down and has decided to come here tonight. So, ladies and gentlemen, as always, no matter who you vote for, no matter who you support, we always give our guests uh, a huge amount of respect. So please, give a huge welcome to Mr Clive Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Got a seat. Um, should, I, should I sit or would you would rather me kneel? <laughs> Just check, this is all not being recorded. Chatham House rules. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No one's going to say anything about this. That is right, isn't it? Yeah. But it's, oh, it's all off the record. You can be as candid as you like. Excellent. As, as candid as you would be at a Labour Party conference event, Clark. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, I was, I was going to cancel. I'll be quite... I, mean, I, I spoke to you earlier on, I was, and, but I wouldn't let you down at the last minute. I so appreciate that, thank you. Well, I came on and I thought, this is going to be tough, because, <laughs> because obviously I do feel a bit bruised. I think normally as a politician, you kind of feel, you know, you, that internal sensor in your head. We, look, we, live, in a, we live in a racist, uh, patriarchal society, and we all kind of go through a journey on life. You know, some of my colleagues are kind of on a, on a journey. I think we're all on a journey. And uh, you have a sensor in your head. And I think the standard for the left is, quite rightly, a lot higher. And you normally, on that, you've got that kind of balance in your head. And you think, OK, I can be a bit witty. 
Um, I know where the edge of the, the cliff is. I can skate a leg out and maybe go along. And normally I feel quite confident. That's where the funny zone is. I'm now over here <laughs> at the moment because, you know, I'm feeling a little bit bruised and battered. But at the same time, I am also aware no one wants to hear about politicians who've, you know, said stupid things, offensive things, feeling sorry for themselves. I apologised. Um, it was the right thing to do. I shouldn't have said it. And I also accept there were people, lots of people who said, oh, it was that. But there were people who were offended. And, you know, if it's, it's a tough, it's a, it's a very tough situation, but I thought the apology was the right thing to do, and I stand by it. It's, you know, in a way, I can see why people were offended. You know, when you, you read that story, so it's not the sort of thing that, uh, that any politician should be saying uh, in public, uh, arguably in private. Um, but equally, we, we all know that in private, people joke and say things. And yeah. if you're amongst friends, you know, the context of that event um, was a sort of friendly event. It was a Navarro media thing. You were amongst a, a lot of friends on stage. Do you kind of feel that it, it was a sort of quasi-private event and as a result, your guard was down? Do you know what? It's a really interesting thing. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a ticketed event. Um, and it was a kind of world-transformed momentum type event. Someone, someone, someone who I think a lot of said to me that one of the most offensive things they found about the kind of the response of those who came out in support of me, or some of them, was that it was a kind of, yeah, yeah, but it was, you know, it was our, our space. Our, it's actually the whole thing about the Labour Party, the whole thing about momentum, the whole thing about the new type of politics, which lots of us genuinely do believe in, despite what the Tories say and trying to mock us and so on, is that it isn't an exclusive club. It's open for everyone. And if, if everyone doesn't feel a part of it and can't feel a part of it, then it's, it's not working. So it's not a defence, really, you can use. Um, people, yes, people felt part of a club. They felt but that club should be open to everyone. And if, if there are people who feel because of the language being used they can't be part of it, then that's not a defence, I think. So, you, you know, look, yeah, it was, uh, you know, we know the context, we know it was a bloke, we know all that, but nonetheless it was still wrong. A, a lot of people were offended by it, male and female. Um, did, did any of your colleagues come to you and say... Clive, I was offended by what you said. Any parliamentarians? Uh, um, after, yes, they did. After the, some of the people who'd um, gone, to, who'd spoken to the media and, and, and used social media to say that, they then came to me after and said that. Yeah. And what did you just say? You just apologise again? Yeah, yeah. I, I basically just said, you know, it was wrong. I shouldn't have said it. I mean, in a way, Jared's done you a bit of a favour. <laughs> You know, a, a conspiracy theorist might say, did Clive Lewis... He's not... Leak? The, like, he's not... He's, <laughs> no. no. Uh, uh, this gets edited, doesn't it? No, he, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. I'll tell you why he hasn't done a favour. He hasn't, he hasn't done that. You know, he's under investigation. He's... Um, and, you know, I, he's been suspended now. He's had the whip removed from him. And, you know, to kind of comment on what, what he's, you know, admittedly said in his past... Yeah is one thing. The new allegations that have come out about what he said more recently, they'll be investigated by the relevant NEC body. Um, But uh, for me personally, you know, some people have been coming up to me and saying, you know, you know, Jared. And I'm like, well, no, because A, A, my first thoughts are always with, you know, whoever the victims are of what he's alleged to have done. That always has to be the case. If you're going to empathise, you empathise with the victims, first and foremost. But, you know, what kind of society would it be if you can't empathise with the person? You know, you should be able, we should be able to empathise with people who've committed crimes. You know, 
we should be able to empathise. Always the victims first, but you should always empathise with the people who have apparently done the wrong. And my heart, I know, I do empathise with, with him because I feel, you know, he's, I've, I've had a little taste of what it's like. It's not pleasant. He shouldn't have said what he said. Uh, he apologised for the first part. He's now in investigation for the rest of it. Um, but it, from my point of view, I don't feel like, whew, thank, thank you for Jared. I feel, I feel sorry for whoever he said what he said to, if he has said it, and I feel sorry for him as well because, you know, his life is going to be pretty torn up at the moment. It is, it's, he's probably, you know, regretful of what he's done. I'd like to think he would be. Uh, and also as well, it's not nice, you know, look, if you go onto The Guardian, you can read an article about me. You know, it's, it, it hurts me to see that the you know, logarithms now say you may also be interested in Harvey Weinstein. Um, <laughs> you know, which uh, is, not, is not a really good feeling. Um, it's not. And, no, and, and at the end of the day, again, I say, you know, this isn't about me. It's not about how I feel. I, I said what was wrong, and I'm not going to sit here and whinge and say, oh, woe is me. I did what I did. You know, you just have to take what comes with it. Purely devil's advocate here, because, you know, I, I do think... I agree with you that the standard is different for the left, but only because people like Jeremy Corbyn say we want kinder, gentler politics, and therefore that is the context in which, um, in a way, the left chooses to be judged at times. Um, but purely being devil's advocate, and uh, uh, frankly, I was uh, appalled by what Jared had, had written, but purely being devil's advocate, is there an argument that says that actually this makes it harder for people to come into politics because people might be worried about things they've said online in the past... Yeah. sometimes in the distant past, or actually, does this demonstrate something about his character that suggests he was unfit for office at all? Um, everyone, I think everyone has a... Everyone, I think most people listening, most people in this room, would have said things in their past um, that they're not proud of, uh, well, or well, maybe well, things well, in well, the well, last well, five minutes, in your case. <laughs> um, uh, there may be... You know, <laughs> There, there may be, you know, there, I think everyone, everyone's on a journey. Life is a journey. And you learn about, you know, I, I've learned things since I left school. I've learned things since I've been to university. I learned things in student unions. I learned things in parliament. You know, I've learned things in the army. I've learned things about life. And you bring them to the table. And when you become an MP, you know, if you've got some life experience behind you, you hopefully bring those things to the table. One of the things about some of the new intake of MPs, some of them are very young. Um, and, and, you know, and, and from flash to bang, between what they were writing and to where they are now, you know, Jared, Jared, Jared grew up in an internet age, you know, a social media age. Um, I, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people here, some of whom may have responsible jobs. Well, looking around, maybe not, but um, <laughs> some of them have responsible jobs. And um, you, there's probably things that you've said in the past where you're thinking, geez, if we had social media now, if I had a social media footprint, would I... Would I be able to do the job that I currently do? Would I not, you know, would I not be opening myself up? And I think as a society, it's probable, it's, I think we're going to have to become more tolerant um, because if we don't, there are a lot of potential leaders and public figures who otherwise now, because of what they're doing on social media, as they're learning, um, are going to rule themselves out, write themselves out of any future. And I think that's something we as a society are going to have to kind of get to terms, come to terms with. But does that mean we have to be intolerant? We have to be sorry. We have to be tolerant of intolerance. No, no, it's not. And it's just, that sounds hypocritical. I think though that there are things that Jared said, if we, no, I don't, just things that he said, which anyone listening to would say, but if he had said that today, last week, uh, as a candidate, or just it, it's it's deeply troubling. Uh, it's deeply troubling anyway, but. He said many of these things as a 
kind of young teenager, young man. And, you know, who knows in terms of, I was reading, and I think Jared touched on this, you know, this is someone who was, um, he has a disability, a very physical disability with his hand. Um, I think he even said, you know, being ginger as well, I was bullied. Um, and, you know, how does that play into his psychology growing up as a teenager, bullied himself, I imagine, probably, wanting to be one of the lads, you can overcompensate. Now, I'm not justifying what he said in any way. I'm trying to empathise with him. Um, and he was showing intolerance. He was showing all those things. But he was growing up. He was trying to deal with it. And, you know, it's, I guess you can, how, you, it's how you look at crime. You know, there's some of us who think and look at crime and you look at criminals and you think this person deserves to be punished. But as a kind of, you know, uh, hand-wringing socialist, I also think there's a part for, for rehabilitation. Uh, and actually, you, you know, you can look, you can, some people would have people executed, some people would have people locked up and the key thrown away. I'm one of those people that think, do the, do the, do the crime, do the time, but also the, the rehabilitation process, because ultimately, do you not want this person to come out and be a productive member of society, to learn from what they've done? That's, I think, a bit of a difference for us on the left. There are others on the right who would say, perhaps not all, but some, who would say, throw away the key. You committed the crime, goodbye. You know, that, I think, you know, so I think you can look at what people have said in the past. I think you can say, as a society, this is a, a young person growing up, trying to understand, find their way in the world. Um, then let's be a little bit more tolerant about what they've said, uh, because let's judge them now on where they are and where they want to take the country, what vision they have. Uh, that's, that's what I think. I mean, it's, it's difficult enough to be judged, perhaps, on, on previous social media posts. How... How difficult do you find it, in the very provocative world of Twitter and, and, and social media now, to be a Member of Parliament where people send you abuse or they try and provoke you? Are you, are you, are you quite sort of zen about it, or are there times when you do oh. reply? Or? <laughs> there are time, so I think you develop, a, you develop a Twitter personality, which is, uh, I've got into Twitter spats before, and it's not a good look, because you end up, it's the, it's the, it's the, you know, you want to listen to the better sides of your, you know, the better nature, the better, your, the angels of, the better angels of your nature. And it's so easy to get into a kind of nasty, <laughs> and that's the easy thing to do. When you, you know, you wake up sometimes in the morning, you look at it with one eye, you're like, what the? <laughs> and you, you write something. And then you kind of realise, actually, that was the wrong, that was really the wrong response. And so I find what I've used on Twitter is, um, is either wit <laughs> some people may question where with it is either wit or it's um, humour and showing that you've got a sense of humour a sense of humanity and it's like you know try to rise above it and you often find I found when, I, when you use that they either switch off they realise they can't bait you because obviously when you say something nasty it's, it's, it comes out far more people are more interested in it than if someone you know with five followers said something um, and alright we're not all bad mate <laughs> <laughs> and I guess also, you know, it, it's, it, it just cuts it off. It stops it. Yeah. And a lot of people, I've had people who've kind of come at me and I've been either humorous and nice and they said, well, yeah, okay, actually, no, what I meant was... And then they engage in a conversation yeah. with you. So um, I think a lot of people have a perception of you and it's a, it's a platform where they... It's not just a one-way platform where you talk to them on a television, for example. It's a two-way process and they, a lot of them want you. Like, ah, I heard that you said and you think and you, yeah. you think you're better... And, you know, they'll get that. And you just say, well, no, actually, I, actually, I, I respect your opinion. And I, but I don't agree with it. But here's, here's an alternative. And then, oh, and you engage with me. So there are other ways around it. And I, I think on Twitter, you know, it is, it is difficult. I know a lot of MPs now are coming off Twitter. 
are coming off Facebook. Uh, yeah, there's a few, a couple of, a couple who are coming off Twitter. Um, I know someone today who said I'm coming. I've been off Facebook for a year. Um, someone else said I've been off it for a couple of years now. Yeah, I think I think it's just the risk and the rewards are such that I think people are weighing up. Is it worth it? You know, you can have a fantastic Facebook profile, fantastic Twitter account. You know, have thousands of followers. It is a bubble. It won't win you an election. Um, so when we're talking about Facebook profile. We're talking about like your professional, not like Clive Lewis's personal like holiday snaps and. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you, 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 but you, you, you. I know. Actually, I think people are talking about their personal ones. Really? Yeah. So what do you are you careful about? What you per, do? You put holiday snaps on your personal ones sort of by the. Oh, uh, my my personal one is. <laughs> I did. Basically, I haven't uploaded anything for for years now. Um, and I've also a lot of people add me as a friend that I've come across. I don't because. It just allows people to kind of... There are lots of people on there. I could go through the list. There are probably a, you know, a few hundred. Go through and, and weed people out that I don't really know. Strictly purge know. them. Purge, yeah, <laughs> purge. We like a good purge on the left. Um, and <laughs> uh, that will be taken out of context, I'm sure now. Uh, and, yeah, go through it and kind of check it. And, but ultimately, I basically use that for communication with my family and close friends. And ba- I don't think it comes up on many people's timelines because I barely touch it. So it's not very interesting. I basically hit uh, share on those uh, memories yeah. from how many years ago, and that's about it. Really. <laughs> you, um, people should be careful though about provoking you, shouldn't they? Not only are you a, a parliamentarian, but you, you pass through Sandhurst. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. Territorial Army served in Afghanistan. I mean, people want to watch their mouths, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know. Am I a violent person because I've been in the army? I don't trained like to think killer. So. Trained killer, yeah, but you need a weapon in your hand. Um, so, you All know, right, I let's did. not <laughs> leave that to anyone. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no. That, you, I think you know that was why. Um, so, no, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not something that's associated with people on the left. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, I, I've been on a journey um, in the sense that I've come to, I came to a point, you know, through my family background, my grandfather was a power in Normandy and so on and so forth. I had that influence in my life. Um, you know, I was political. Uh, I always thought of myself on the left, but I kind of bought into the whole idea that, you know, Afghanistan failed state in part because we backed the Mujahideen. They took on the Soviets. They pulled out. We left them behind. Failed state. It imploded. We washed our hands of it because the job was done. And then you had this failed state in which, you know, you had the 7-7 bombings, which were based there. And people said, we need to go to this country. We need to kind of sort it out and make sure it's not a failed state. It's quite an imperialistic kind of viewpoint. Um, go there. And to my mind, I kind of justified it with the training I'd done, was that this, was, this wasn't Iraq. It was something different. We were going to the country, stop it from being a, you know, a breeding ground for terror and uh, make the country a better place. It was very idealistic. Mm. Um, I don't think I agree with it. I definitely don't agree with everything. All my reasoning back then, I was on a journey. Um, and am I proud of what I did going over there um, in 2009? Um, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of how I conducted myself. Um, do I think the foreign policy decisions of the government at the time were necessarily the correct ones? Probably in hindsight, no, I don't. So, so it's, it's, a, it's quite a complicated feeling. About I can it. imagine that. And not, you know, I don't think anyone's under the illusion that, that every member of the armed forces agrees with the foreign policy of no, the government right. that, yeah. which they serve. Um, but what made you want to join the army then? You talk about your, your grandfather's influence. Was there something else that... Yeah, I was working at the BBC that? and I felt like I'd come up against um, a kind of glass ceiling. Like I, th- I didn't feel like I'd, I, could pers- I, could, I, could, I could properly express myself and 
you know, my abilities through the BBC and what I was doing. I was a you know a regional news reporter, uh, a bit of an Adam, maybe a bit of kind of Adam Partridge character. So, well, so, uh, it was, it was, <laughs> so you did something in Nottingham, didn't you? What, what other areas was it? Um, so it was Leeds, Nottingham. Uh, and Norwich. And what sort of stories were you covering, like proper local news? Yeah, so kind of skateboarding ducks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did, I did so. I mean, we did, I did, I did say, look, look, you cover all kinds of stories. You cover, you know, murder cases. You cover um, political programmes. I, yeah. I was a political, a senior political reporter for a while. You cover, you know, everything. Council stories, uh, you know, heart-wrenching stories, love stories, wacky stories. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting. Did you have a kind of news reporter voice that you put on? Uh, yes. <laughs> so if, if we said, uh, we're going over to Nottingham now, Clive is at the scene. Clive, what can you tell us about what you see in the street there? Well, man, it's not the uh, most salubrious of locations <laughs> that I'm in now, but I want to tell you about what I've just seen down here. And there's a, there is a news reporter, this is Clive Lewis, BBC Look East, somewhere you don't want to be. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, yeah, there was my brother's... Very controversial sign-off. It was, sign <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, my brother's, my brother's friends, when I used to go out with them, they used to love it. Like, do your BBC voice, please do your BBC voice. And they would all just sit there, because it's a, there, is a, there is a kind of, yeah, there is a pattern to... to we have to project a certain you authority. You yeah, yeah, which I've completely lost now, I'm in politics. <laughs> so, yeah. So you, you sort of work in local news, and then you, you effectively smash the, the glass ceiling with a with a bayonet by joining the <laughs> by, by joining with the a, army. With a, yeah, with a few clips. No, I I, I um, yeah, I, I joined it partly because of the I was in the cadets when I was younger, and then I remember doing a, I actually did a story on the TA, and I I found out that you could actually join the uh, media operations group. But when I joined, when I came went through them, they turned around to me and said. You need to be, we want you to be in the infantry, really. And then you get seconded over with your cat badge. But we need, we need infantiers. We know, we've got enough signals and so on and so forth. Yeah. We want infantiers. So I had to go and join rifles, join the rifles, went through their training, went to Scotland to do my, it was, it was a Scottish unit who had had their leave cancelled um, to train us. And they weren't best pleased. It wasn't the best two weeks <laughs> of my life. Um, and good training in dealing with the it was, SMP. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, these guys were mild compared to the SMP. No, no the SMP, all right. Uh, the SMP MPs that I meet in Parliament for. And um, so you can tell I'm really cautious about what I'm <laughs> And uh, yeah, went through, went through the training, went to, you know, did the pre trat Sandhurst training for a number of years, and then did my final, uh, my final module at Sandhurst. And then I did the post. Uh, infantry training at Brecon Beacons. It's a, it's a kind of course office. And, and then ended up going to, to Afghanistan in 2009. And how, you know, the cliche of, the, of, of Sandhurst, of the sort of sergeant major stuff, is that still there? Lewis, you rotten piece of sight! Oh, yeah, there's plenty of that. I mean, mainly on the parade ground. I mean, on the, one of the things they hate in Sandhurst, they hate what they call the grey man. And the grey man is the person... So when we were, our sergeant, who used to kind of... Uh, was one of the... Um, Sergeants at Sandhurst used to be one of them, and he, he was training us. And he said they hate the grey man. And basically, if they ask you a question, if you don't know the answer, put your hand up. Because what they're looking for, they're looking for the people. If they think you're confident, if they think you know a little bit, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm not too concerned about you. It's the ones who are quiet, who try to merge into the background. They're the ones that they're going to drill down on. So don't be the grey man. If you think you can come in and be the grey man, you can't, because that's what they're trained. That's what they, that's what they want. They want to find out who's got the 
who's got the oomph, who's got the confidence, and who's kind of slinking back into the shadows. So uh, I just came at it full throttle. I had a, I had a great, I had a, I had a great time at Santa. It, it sounds very intense, but it was, it was the TA, wasn't it? Though? So, so it's not the real army. <laughs> Funny thing is, it was a changeover when I remember one of the uh, officers at Sandhurst saying to us uh, towards the end, tell you what, in the past, as TA, we didn't give a fuck about you, to be quite frank. But with Iraq, with Afghanistan, we're not letting you pass through here to end up leading our boys, regular soldiers, out there and getting them killed. So we expect the standard that we put through here in terms of your fitness, in terms of your, you know, your, your ability, your strategic planning, your, you know, all of it. Or it has to be up to par, up to scratch. And if you didn't, you, you didn't pass. And it was, it was, it was a, I think because it was 2006 I went through, which was at the kind of the height of Iraq, Afghanistan was just about starting, there was a higher, a higher threshold. Yeah. Thing. That's, that, that's, 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 I think, genuinely what happened. Yeah. But could you have said no if you're in the TA? Can you say, look, I, I really just enjoy being with the lads at the weekend, yeah. you know, yeah. basically do the Krypton factor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, fucking send me out there. <laughs> <laughs> You can, you so there's no. a thing called intelligent mobilisation, they call it, which is, a, which is a kind of oxymoron in the army, I admit. But it's called, intelligent, it's called, in, uh, it's called intelligent mobilisation. It's basically... I'm probably going to get shot for saying this now. But basically what happens is uh, you, go on, you go to the TR on a certain night and someone will come out and go, we've been called up, um, can we have volunteers? And you kind of volunteer. When you volunteered, they then say, right, we're not going to say anything, and they take your name and then you get an official call-up, which you can then turn around to your, your partner and say, oh, 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 oh God. And so that's normally how it happened. Technically, technically, they can call you up. And I remember when I joined back in, originally started around 2001, 2002, I remember the lieutenant saying, listen, guys, we haven't been called to war as, as the uh, TA since the Korean War, so you can relax. And then I think a kind of year or two later, the, um, the Iraq War, the, goal, the Iraq War was kicking off a couple of years later. So, um, yeah, it was bad timing on my part, I suppose. But, yeah, no, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a voluntary organisation. And, you know, there is a, you do know that you can be, you will be the first to be kind of conscripted in, should that be mm. the case, if the, the shit hits the fan. Um, but by and large, it's what's called intelligent mobilisation. Uh, and it gives you a, a level of experience that the very few people have had, very few parliamentarians, and obviously when you were Shadow Secretary of State for Defence, you, you must have had a, a knowledge and an understanding of the brief, really, that, that very few of your predecessors have had in, in the shadow or in the, in the actual brief. Well, I mean, I think in terms of credibility, it meant as a, as a, as, you know, as a, a leftist, as um, Michael Fallon would look at you and kind of sneer, he kind of had a little bit of a harder time with me because although I was one of the kind of Corbyn's Mensheviks or whatever he called us. Um, uh, he, you know, he would, you know, he would get booed by people. Say, hold on a second. Yeah. He said, "What have you, you know, you know, you've sat there and done your armchair quarterbacking." Um, but actually, so it did give a. He, he did, I think, tread a little bit, a bit more carefully around what he said. He did take the, you know, he did take the piss, to be quite frank. But um, it, it, it doesn't give it doesn't give me some kind of strategic insight into the Royal Navy, about no. the kind of the, the, the ships we were... I, was a, I wasn't a grunt, but I was a, a lieutenant um, who had, a, you know, when we were training and platoon of guys, when I was out there, only a small team. Um, I don't, that doesn't give you a right to kind of think, mm, I think the Strategic Defence Review was completely wrong, <laughs> because, you know, it but I think it does give you a level of credibility, especially if you're on the left, if you're in the Corbyn's cabinet, as it was then. I mean, now people are looking at Corbyn's, you know, Jeremy's cabinet, shadow cabinet, 
and saying, this could be a government in waiting. When I stepped up, you know, it was a bit different. It was a lot more difficult. We were in the middle of a civil war. That's not happening at the moment. And so the credibility factor is there for them. Um, so it's a bit difficult, different when we were there. So when you were Shadow Defence Secretary, if you did with you know, the Chief of Defence Staff or you know, the heads of the Armed Forces or whatever, would they sort of view you as a kind of, you know, one of their own? Or would they see you as a kind of, as a, as a sort of a suspicious lefty who can't be trusted? I don't... <laughs> or a bit of both? I did meet, it's possible. I did meet... I think they're, in, I think they're intrigued. How did yeah, they, what went wrong here? They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How the fuck did he end up with this, with this shit shower of shit? You know, it's, it, you, yes, there was... There was I, I did meet a very high-ranking... Uh, I, I think he was in the Air Force, very high-ranking. I think he might have been the, the top guy when I was show defence sec. I, someone said to me they actually thought he gave me a harder time than Emily Thornberry, who was my mm. predecessor, and this person had been on both meetings. And it might be because he kind of thought, you know, he might have said, in, in Lewis, left, right, left, right, left, right. Um, but, you know, but Emily's a very charming person, so it's possibly just charmed him out of the trees. You know, charmed him out of the trees. Um, but it, yeah, it was, I think he was, I think he was interested as to who, was this, who is this guy in front of me. And, you know, I'm sure they might have looked at your record and stuff and, who knows? But yeah, because it must have been difficult for you because you've got that experience, and as you say, on the left, you know, the the armed forces necessarily top of the list of uh, the sort of uh, public servants that the left sort of idolises and, uh, and adores. Um, and there's that f- very famous moment at, at the Labour Party conference just over a year ago where you're you're about to take the podium <laughs> and commit Labour to uh, you know renewing trident because it was in the manifesto and all the rest of it voted on by the conference of the NEC, and then. A, a post-it note comes across. It's all sort of caught on camera, and, 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 and Seamus Milne basically says, "Well, we've changed the speech, and you can't announce that anymore." I mean, what? It, firstly, when that post-it note came across, what was the first thing you thought? Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite frank, I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, me and Seamus have kissed and made up, and as my dad always says, you know, monkey knows monkeys know which tree to climb, which is an old West Indian saying, which is that. Uh, a monkey won't jump on a tree it doesn't think it can climb up yeah? uh, and he said he won't try and climb up you again he won't do it again because I don't think he would do it to Jeremy I don't think he would do it no. to John MacDonald and you know he shouldn't have done it to me and that's what I said to him I didn't punch Wall when I came off I was pissed off um, what did because, you punch? Uh, nothing <laughs> nothing and I, I was really clear about this because I don't know who, who spread that story I was angry I was furious uh, but I didn't punch a wall because that's, that's about losing control. And I was very clear, the narrative of, uh, of a black man losing control. The media loved it. It was a kind of macho thing. Yeah, you go on, you know you did it. And I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't do it because I'm not going to buy into that, 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 that stereotype of a, of a black man out of control. Because, you know, they could begin, you can begin, to, I, I, you, know, you know, what's happened recently. You can begin to try and put someone in a box about how they are, which kind of... Just, you know, tick certain little boxes which are not on their own or in their own right racist, but they kind of send little signals out, subliminal signals out about what this kind of guy is like. And so I was very clear. I didn't do that, and I, and I made it quite clear. But, you know, look, when, that, when the post-it note came on, I remember I've got the, the text where I was going, what the So way? what did the post-it note say? It said, uh, here's your new speech. And, uh, <laughs> And I, you know, sort of some, change, some small changes. And, and I, you know, we spent ages kind of perfect, you know, trying to perfect this. And, and, and the changes, to be quite, look, to be honest, the changes were really minor. Yeah. Uh, like kind of small tweaks. The, 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 the main thrust of it all was all there. And what annoyed me, though, was that as I went through it, because they'd done it in such a hurry, um, 
they were, it was, didn't make grammatical sense. So you're on there going... Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so, and that's what got me really angry. You've just messed with my script minutes before I'm going to go on. And it doesn't make sense. So I, I ran back to the stage and said, fucking sort this out. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, literally, apparently, I'm told, as I was going up to the podium, it was still being changed. Um, so, uh, you know, in that sense, you know, as I was reading the script, I was like, as I was reading it, and you're doing it, and it's my first conference speech, and I'm going, yeah, and this, and I've got a big announcement to make, and, oh, what's this I'm reading <laughs> yeah. here? That's not quite what I wrote. Yeah. But the, the, the sad thing is, you know... Clive likes what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ron um, Burgundy, we will, we will keep Trident? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was all agreed. I mean, the, the sad thing is, you know, we sat down. The sad thing is, we sat down, and Jeremy showed, and this is the thing, you know, Jeremy showed real leadership here in the sense that he said, I said to him, we can't go on that. We lost a vote in Parliament. You know, we've got the trade unions against us, the main trade unions against us on this because they're behind it. And we haven't won the argument for unilateralism with the public. And, and, and we all, we, I know, you know what I think about this. I know what you think about this. But we know we need to talk about, with you in power, we can talk about multilateralism. Genuine, not about a fig leaf multilateralism. We can talk about, you know, there is no security. If we got rid of our nuclear weapons tomorrow, you know, France, Pakistan, Israel, Russia, America, Trump, yeah, Putin China, Trump. Putin, yeah. still have them, you know, and it's a globalised world. It's not like, you know, oh, we're safe now, you know, and so anything we do has to be in a kind of multilateral... Now, for a long time, from the left and from the, from the kind of CND's point of view and Jeremy's point of view, multilateral was a dirty word, and, 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 we're try- and it was trying to move the debate on from, you know, our unilateralist multilateralist, trying to say, actually, in a global world, with someone like Jeremy, who believes in a nuclear-free world, we actually had an opportunity to say, OK, we accept where we are with this at the moment. We don't agree with it, but we will go ahead with it because we are so far down the line. However, we will use all the, all the, everything at our disposal to make sure that we use those weapons to help get rid of others around the world. And Jeremy would have been, you know, ideally placed, would be ideally placed as Prime Minister to use our weapons to help reduce. And I think when people look around the world now with North Korea... I think people think, my God, it's, it's, it is literally a lot easier than people think. And I know in America now, a lot of people have said, eh, we're not interested in talking about this. They're now very worried. And now they want to talk about the checks and balances and controls on nuclear weapons and how do we begin to reduce them. Because they've seen, look what can happen in our own country. Um, so it was an opportunity. And what was really sad was that he moved. He hasn't changed his position. He wants to see a nuclear-free world. Yeah. But he was being pragmatic. He could see that this was going... He could see that this was always going to be something on the doorstep, in the media, was going to be a stick to beat us with. And it was, it's a hiding to nothing. So all that, that, that tough choice that he made, say, OK, let's, let's move to this. He didn't get the credit for it. And it really, really hurt me because I really wanted him to get the credit for it. Um, and in the end, the story became the, the, you know, the, the, the change to the auto cue. So it was sad and it was, it was upsetting. Um, but ultimately, the position moved. And I think it just took away a big stick for the Tories. And, and that's a good thing, I think. Uh, and in terms of your relationship with him, because you were one of the MPs that nominated him for the leadership, uh, did, that, did that conference experience change your relationship with him, or are you as close now as you ever have? I'm as close with him as I was then. I mean, um, I think a lot of people thought I, you know, a lot of people, I think some people on the left thought that I'd, you know, done him over and, and all that, and it was like, well, it wasn't that. It was, some, you know, someone, a very senior-ranking union person said to me, you know, someone came up to him and said, it's outrageous what he's done. You know, he's punched the wall. He's brought us into, disres- you know, you know, into you know, disrepute. And he said, well, he said, he said, 
I wouldn't have fucking punched the wire, I'd have punched Seamus. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, it was about, it's about basic respect. I, I, I understand what he was trying to do, and, and it, was very, it, was, it, was just, it was just poor, and the time was poor, and I think I was right to be upset. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the changes were really minor. Um, it wasn't a fundamental change, but it, it just took the story away from where it should have been, which was that, you know, Corbyn is genuine about wanting to be leader uh, of this country, and he will do... And I think we've seen that, you know. You will see people writing about what's happened the last week. You know, he's come out and disowned me. Well, he hasn't quite, but he's, <laughs> he's come out and he said, it's wrong, what he, and he was right. He should have done that, you know. And I think, you know, that, you know, in terms of what happened with Ken Livingstone, we should have come out sooner and said, and I think people understand that. And it shows that, you know, the leadership of the Labour Party is serious about winning. And I think what we've also seen as well is, you know... The Conservatives, for the last two years, they haven't bothered with showing. You know, they just thought, you're a shambles. You're a mess. But now that they're concerned, they're back hand in glove with, you know, Guido Fawkes and others. And this won't be the last secret recording, surreptitious recording, or, well, it wasn't even surreptitious, but it won't be the last time they work hand in glove together, I'm sure, because they are genuinely concerned that someone, you know, a real game changer of a prime minister is potentially in government, is on the cusp of coming in. And, and, and that's, that, that's, that's scaring a lot of one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You, what's fascinating though is that you're you're sort of you are a Corbyn loyalist. Is that is that yeah. the right description? Uh, yeah. But yeah. you're sort of at odds on certain things. So on um, Article Fifty, over which you effectively resigned as the uh, uh, Labour whipping MPs to, to to effectively support the government on Article Fifty. This is the big issue on the left now, isn't it? Particularly for the pro-Europeans to say well, we voted for May, one stay in the EU. Why isn't the Labour leadership, which is which benefited in the election from millions of pro-Europeans? What I don't understand, actually, is why don't they just come out and say, we really want to stay in the European Union? Why don't they have a more outwardly, ex- ex- explicitly pro-European stance? I'm not sure everyone does want to stay in the European Union. That's the, that's the thing. But I think they do want the closest possible relationship. And I think, obviously, you have to understand the history of you know, the European debate, which is one where the left, the Benite left in particular, yeah. was anti-going into the, um, you know, the common market, the European common market. And that, some of those leftovers are still there. I think Jeremy is pro-European. I think he voted Remain. I, I know that. Um, I wasn't in the ballot box with him, but I have every confidence <laughs> that he did. Um, Guido recorded and, him, I think. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I also understand there are people who think that there are some people uh, on the pro-European side of my party who have a duality of what they're doing, which is that mm. they are, I think they are all genuinely pro-European. I think some people don't think that there is an alternative. A subtext to this, which is also it's an opportunity to, cl- to, to kind of clobber Corbyn, clobber yeah. the leadership. And I don't, think, I don't think they would be entirely wrong. I think there are some people who do have a duality to what they're doing. But I think there are also people, you know, that, you know on the, the, the centre of the party, if you want, the, the, to the right of myself, yeah. who genuinely, passionately believe in Europe. And you can be both. You can be anti-Corbyn and genuinely, passionately believe in <laughs> Europe. But it means you get the entire package. And there are some people who are suspicious of that. You know, I've just, the reason I, you, know, you say I'm a little bit different... Well, the whole thing about new politics is about 
thinking for yourself. It's about yeah. pluralism, and it's not about replacing you know, a right-wing command and control authoritarian leadership, as I think you know, the party had moved to under Blair, and replacing it with a left-wing command and control authoritarian leadership. I'm a pluralist. You know, I believe in PR. I believe in, you know, I, the reason I believe in progressive alliances, not just electoral pacts, but working with people outside the labour movement, is because if you're going to challenge the establishment, you know, that's been in place since 1066, you're going to need more than 600,000 people. 600,000 people are a start, but it's going to take a wide, it's going to take a wide swathe of civil society, different interest groups and people, trade unions, the labour movement, the labour party, to do that. And it's just a pragmatic approach that I, I take to it. Now, there are some people whose politics were formed in a different era for me and with different traditions. And, you know, for them, it's a, it's, it, it can sometimes be, you know, slightly at odds with where I, I sit. But I see, you know, I'm still a Corbynite. I'm still someone who believes passionately in a social justice, a social and economic justice that Jeremy does, a better world, challenging climate change. And so many of the things I believe in, they, 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 they coincide with, with Corbynism. You know, but there will always be differences. And who wants to live in a country or be in a political movement where everyone thinks the same? Everyone says the same thing. Well, that's, that's bollocks. Yeah, but some people do. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's true. They do. And I think you should be on guard against that because that's not a healthy... You know, that's not how tyranny isn't something that only affects the right. You know, tyranny is something which kind of can descend from and descend on any any political movement. And I think you know there are certain... Paul, Paul Blairites in the in the Labour Party club. But I was told I was told when I was up when I was first asked to come on your show, someone said I said, "What's he like?" And they described you as a nice Blairite. So, <laughs> is that an oxymoron? So, was like, I was ever, uh, so, so um, and I know I think it was a, a good assessment so far. <laughs> um, but you know, nice them to not say fat for once. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing: everyone likes labels. Everyone likes to put people in boxes. You know, Clive's a Corbynite. You know, oh no, is he really voting for Article? You know, he voted for Article Fifty. I mean, you know, on Article Fifty, you know, I looked at Article Fifty and I saw, I, you know, I looked at it and I thought. You know, the two key caveats, the two key red lines for me that Keir came up with were the European Union uh, citizens and a meaningful vote for Parliament. And when they didn't get through, I just said, I can't sign this. I voted for the second reading because I thought we had to respect the, the, uh, the referendum. But the third reading, I thought, we can't sign up to this because we're giving them a blank cheque. And, and that's where we differed. And, and, and I, couldn't, I couldn't sign that. And now we hear David Davis saying... We might not come back to Parliament, and we don't have to come back to Parliament mm. because you still signed Article 50. It's not, it doesn't give me any pleasure saying, yeah, I told you so. But I think, in hindsight, you know, signing Article 50, I understand the, the outcome of the general election, which the, the election that we won but didn't win, may have been very different if we, if we hadn't, if we hadn't you know, signed Article 50. So there's a lot of what ifery about what could have happened, what, what did. But for me, on a point of principle, I couldn't sign that because I, I, I genuinely felt that where we're now heading and the trajectory they were taking us back then, they're taking us off a cliff edge. And it's going to hurt so many of my constituents and so many of the people who can least afford to kind of look out for themselves who don't have, you know, large amounts of savings and assets. These are the people that are going to really suffer from the mess that the government are making of this. It's a big challenge Keir Starmer faces to sort of walk this line of Labour policy. He also obviously has a sort of bigger challenge to sort his hair out. (laughs) What is going on with his hair? And and is there any hope, Clive, that one day he will be able to tame it? Well, I think he's got a range of toupees that he uses. (laughs) Do you know what? I've never 
I've never, I normally listen to what Keir has to say. I'm not looking at his hair, so I can't comment. Keir, if you're listening, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to hang in here for you, mate. Um, no, I, I'll have to have a look now. You can have me looking at his hair. Well, got, it's a sort of parakeet kind of... Well, yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's gel, isn't it? Or... Yeah, it's kind of like, it's like a comb-over, but a man who doesn't need a comb-over. <laughs> it's so long, anyway, uh, let's not go down that, but... Um, I think he's doing a fabulous job. I think he's the right person in the right place at the right time because you, you do need a, a kind of a, a, an analytical kind of legal mind on something, which is probably one of the most complex things we've had in, you know, in, in, in the last 50 years to deal with, a massive constitutional change. And he is, that, you know, a re- he's, I think he's doing a, a brilliant job in really tough circumstances. And we won't always agree. I won't always agree with you know, the, the line he's taking, but... Who, who, you know, look at this, you know, you've got a government with a whole civil service, which is in turmoil and chaos, you know, he's got, you know, three pads and a little bit of help from, you know, someone at the weekend and he's trying to, to deal with this, I think he's doing, I think he's doing brilliantly. It sounds like he needs more staff. <laughs> that's the short money. Yeah, if we get the Tories, give us more short money, then maybe. Um, you're a very passionate bloke, and that's something that sort of comes across. And what I think, whenever you think of people, it's always interesting, I think, to think of the image that first comes to mind. I was thinking of this this afternoon, and I thought, Clive Lewis, and it's you on stage at your camp this year when <laughs> the, the result gets... If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube. I've never seen anyone react to being elected. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of... It's almost like a sudden-death World Cup winning goal. <laughs> it's a kind of... Ex- it's like Stuart Pearce in Euro 96. <laughs> must, people must have been petrified. Yeah, well, there's, there's a real a, explosion of emotion. Well, there's, a, there's a Liberal Democrat guy with that, these kind of round, kind of thick rimmed glasses and they the independent did a video that went viral young people loved it and it was a cut of me going <laughs> and then it, and it does that it comes in the close-up does me again and you just see him they have a close-up of him just going looking like you know like a like a kind of victorian father going, what the hell and um it, it, it was look it, i think when you understand that you know i had it was my you know norwich north chloe smith conservative she spent mm. most of the time in my constituency they were bussing people in. You know, we've been told by the media we were toast. You know, they had the election campaign they had. Towards the last week, you know, so I came back thinking, you know, I might just hang on in. There was a point where I thought I was going to lose. And then, you know, you get whispered in your ear, you've doubled your majority. It, wow. th- it is like, the fuck? It was such a relief because it, 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 all that pent-up emotion, all that happened, all the kind of, as you walked into the count and you, you had kind of, uh, you know, lots of, you know, many, very young Tories kind of s- slightly gloating, kind of, you know, what's going to happen tonight? And as the night progresses, you just see them kind of floating away and their head going down. And it's a sense of relief, yeah. sheer joy and relief. You know, I was at the ITV when they, when they, when they uh, released the, um, the exit poll. Exit poll. Yeah. And I just, it took me about five seconds, like a dumb look, to kind of does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. And I turned and I went... She's toast! <laughs> like that, because it all just sat... And so, you know, that night, that was just up. That was just like, if not two year, 18 months, where we kind of were told, you're on a hiding to nothing at the next election under Corbyn. And no, we didn't win. But, by God, it wasn't a hiding to nothing. And it was a game-changer. And it's, it's transformed, Jeremy. Transformed, you know, politics in this country. And it was just a lot of pent-up emotion <laughs> released in about three seconds. Was, was, was there any um, parts of you that thought, well, look, if I just scrape in, but it's a thrashing, I could be leader. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to admit, I was just thinking about, I was actually thinking about survival 
um, and staying as an MP. And then if I had scraped in, survival and not being purged by the inevitable... Because uh, they already had their knife, so they already had they were sharpening a knife and forks. I mean, if you're on social media, I mean, knowing Jones was you know, being, basically being told he was going to be strung up, you know, li- you know, me- metaphorically speaking, politically, because of what he had done in terms of supporting Corbyn, and it was basically, you know, there's going to be a reckoning. You know, you you fucked around with the party for 18 months, and now we're having it back after the election. So, you know, th- to be honest, in my mind, it was either surviving politically. Uh, or surviving, start surviving as a Labour MP in the kind of coming purge uh, from you know, from the right of the party, if it, you want. Will this sort of ever end? Do you think this kind of because both sides feel justified in saying, right, well, we're in charge now. We're going to show you lot. And you know, I think that exists definitely on the Blair right wing. It, it certainly exists on the sort of you know Corbyn Hart McDonald end that that people feel morally justified in saying, well, we're going to show you lot now. It's a, will it, it ever be for more some civil? For some people, there will no, there will never be reconciliation on both sides, and 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 it's just not within their political nature. Can't we build a lasting peace in the Labour Party? A lasting party. peace in the Labour Party. Peace in our time. I'd yeah. like to be able to. The hand um, of history. The, yeah. <laughs> the hand of history. I think for some people there won't be record. They, they, they can't be. I think for some there's a lot of bitterness. I think some um, felt that they were robbed of their political inheritance, if you thought. You know, yeah. the generation after Blair and, and, and Gordon, and they feel that that's been, they've been robbed, it's been taken away from them. It's their rightful. And, uh, you know, whatever we think about, whether we call that, you know, self in, you know self-entitlement, or whatever it is you want to describe that, you know, there's some people who are genuinely upset at, at how things have gone. Um, I think the, the vast majority of the PLP are at a point now where they'll say, look, I'm never going to be a Corbynista. I'm never going to be uh, what you would call the hard left. I don't think I'm the hard left, but I'm never going to be. But I do understand that something has changed. We didn't see that. You... You, you, not, that you, not that you did, but your politics as such, it's kind of come full circle and people are now looking for something you know, dramatically different which talks to a different type of politics, talks to a different set of values and, and principles. Um, and therefore, you were in the right place saying the right thing at the right time. And some, most people get that and it's like, but my main priority is a Labour government uh, and, and therefore we will get behind this and work to it. That's where most people are. But there are some people who are bitter, um, and there are some people on the left who will never forget that. And you know, you've got members who you know were, give, you know, were kicked out because of tweets that they, they wrote to, to MPs and stuff, and, and, and feel deeply aggrieved. What I would say is actually this cycle has to stop, because if it doesn't, then you know what future for the party, what future, what long-term future. So I think at some point people have got to say to each, to each other, this was a painful process we've been through. It's about a process of change within the party. But actually, we can come together, we can actually work together, because we all, at the end of the day, do have the same values and principles. We want to make people's lives better. We want to see a fair society. We want to see a sustainable economy. Uh, and and if, we, if we agree on that, we might differ slightly on how we get there, but we can agree that we want to get there. And I think that, that for me, if we can do that, and there are an increasing number of people I think that are doing that, then I think you know, we've got a good future. In that spirit, mm. what was the best thing about Tony Blair? Uh, <laughs> cherry. <laughs> um, uh, he sent good Christmas cards. He did send good Christmas cards. He still sends good Christmas cards. Does uh, he send any to you? Um, they stopped. <laughs> um, they've stopped. Um, look, I think the thing is, we always look at Tony Blair through the prism of, you know, Iraq and hindsight. And, and, and for some people, that's just it's unforgivable. When we look at, you know, when we look at what happened, when we look at 
I also think the missed opportunities under Blairism uh, and Tony, um, then you begin to sound. But it's very easy for us in hindsight, now that you know, potentially neoliberalism is, is potentially faltering on its, on its, on its, perhaps on its knee, uh, on its last legs. <laughs> um, that was a genuine <laughs> that was a genuine slip up um, on its last legs if you want <laughs> just dire. that was dire um, on its last legs um, uh, I've lost my train <laughs> but okay, I think you should have bought from Iraq he was so, a really good so, promise so I think look it's easy now to look back and say you know with, with the kind of neoliberalism for want of a better word Thatcherism Reaganism kind of coming apart at the seams um, it's easy to, it's easy now you have to think Ben back at the, the end of history as it was in the noughties and the 90s with Clinton the third way they were trying to take a dominant economic, political and economic philosophy and try to make it work for as many mm. people as possible. And we, there were people like Jeremy and the others on the left who were like, it will never work. And mm. in many ways, I think they've been proven right. But they, they Blair always defined himself as a pragmatist. And this is where we are. And, and to that extent, you can, you, know, you can say, okay. But I think where it becomes difficult is Iraq, but it also becomes difficult in some of the reforms and changes they made in terms of not repealing any anti- anti-trade union legislation, which was some of the most draconian in the Western world. There's no excuse for that. Uh, in terms of, you know, you know stopping you know, a European-wide corporation tax, which Gordon Brown did, because it wasn't in the interest of the City of London, which would have stopped a race to the bottom around you. There were things that they did, which I think, even, with, even without the uh, ability of hindsight, it was difficult to kind of justify... Uh, and also, so many of the opportunities with the majorities they had, how we could have made quite fundamental, lasting changes. Things like PR and the Constitution. You know, what happened to that? Well, the Lords is still there after 13 years of a Labour government. Um, you know, whatever you think of the Lords, what, what reform... And so, though, so much of the changes under Blairism, I thought, were built on a house of sand. And when the Tories came in in a coalition, they were able to sweep away so much of what we did in, in a, such a matter of... But we, did, we, li- we lifted, you know, under Blair and Brown, we lifted a million children out of poverty. You know, we introduced the minimum wage. You know, we put more, we put more of a percentage of GDP into healthcare spending than, you know, for, for decades before. Good things were done. I just think we have a high standard for the Labour Party in this country, and rightly so, and more could have been done. Um, and I think that's where, for a lot of people, you know... I think also as well with what Tony said after that, I would basically he said I would rather have I would rather I would rather have a I guess he said a Tory government than a left wing Labour government. I think for a lot of Labour people that was that was deeply you know deeply unforgivable to say that. I think what he actually said, Clive, was look, I think I think Brexit <laughs> added to a hard left Labour government would be a sort of one two knockout for the British economy. Mm-hmm. That you know. That's, that, that's, that's exactly. Yeah, you know, look, you know, and I think it's easy. It's, it, we love bogeymen, don't we? We love, we love to kick people and so on. And I, I genuinely think, you know, for his faults, and he had, he had many, he's a human being, you know, we've all got faults. Um, I think, you know, he probably genuinely thought he was doing good, trying to do good. I don't think he was going, <laughs> um, you know, but there were some decisions which I think Chilcott, you know, shows, which were, were deeply flawed. Um, and I don't think he's. I don't. I never get the sense that he's genuinely accepted that, uh, and that's. I think that's painful. And I think that process of forgiveness will always be difficult, whilst he's in denial about so much of what happened. Doesn't mean that he shouldn't be forgiven. I just think it will be for many people. It will be. It's very difficult. Um, but I think you know. Let's see what history says and how history judges him and the Labour Party and what came after. 
It'll be interesting to see how history goes with it all. It will. Uh, let's open up the uh, floor to questions. We've got time for two or three, so do clearly indicate. We'll get a microphone to you. Just have the high slides so we make it a bit easier, but there's definitely someone in the middle there clearly indicating, so if we can get a roving mic over to uh, the chap there. Do let us know your name, and, uh, and then uh, if we can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, that would really help. Uh, thanks. Uh, my name's Joe. Um, I'm, not, I'm not doubting your, your left credentials at all when I ask this. Uh, I think you're a kind of different type of, of left-wing Labour MP to, to perhaps some of the other Corbynites. But it, took, it took you, I noticed, quite a long time, a noticeably long time, to back Jeremy Corbyn in 2016 in the leadership election. Why, why was it that you backed him so much later than quite a lot of the other left-wing Labour MPs? Uh, okay, is that chance that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's the public platform that you know, John, you know, John, I, I was, my support never wavered for Jeremy. I think in 2016 it was a very difficult time because you'd had what was called the, the chicken coup um, and, uh, and then you had Owen Smith's challenge and Jeremy didn't need nominations um, to get on so you didn't have to put your name forward. Uh, so I think I will be quite honest and say I was always going to support Corbyn. I just think it was a slightly different situation in 2016 in the sense that it wasn't, you know, we weren't running around looking for nominations from MPs. So in that sense, and also as well, the machine itself by 2016, after the leadership campaign a year ago, was pretty well oiled. And the part that we play, it was a real amateur setup at the beginning. So we all played quite a big part in trying to get the nominations going around the country with him. In 2016, you know, you had momentum that was in place and there was already a pretty well-oiled machine. So it wasn't a matter about coming out and doing all of that again the second time around. So my support for Corbyn was always there in 2016. But I do know that there are people saying, where's Owen Jones? Where's Clive Lewis? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you saying that? But there was a video, I think, of, at the time of that where I came out and said I support Corbyn. You know, it's as simple as that. So, yeah, but I, you know, I do take your point. But, but, it, but those things are sort of symbolic, aren't they? You know, if you don't immediately come out and support someone, yeah. they go, oh, well, what's Clive up to? Yeah, and I, think I mean, you could just be without no, no, Wi-Fi. No, it's true, but I think also... <laughs> that's, where, that's what I'm going to put it down to. No, I think as well, I think as well um, at the, in, that, in that election as well, some of the issues are very different as well. And I think, you know, what I did say, as I, if I recall correctly, I did say um, after a year, things weren't going as they should be. Mm. And I, I was quite honest. I said, if we're honest, hand on heart, we could have been better. We should, and we have to own up to that. However, the, you know, the challenge to Jeremy, uh, the fact that the party had spent a year tearing itself apart, the PLP and the party, the fact of what had happened to new members that had joined and the way they'd been treated, uh, there was no way I was going to be able, uh, no way I was going to be able to do anything other than support Corbyn. But I think it's right to be able to say, but we also have to take on board one of the reasons we are where we are, I haven't helped ourselves, is that sometimes some of those decisions, some of the ways that we as a leadership have operated, haven't been brilliant. But we were on a learning curve. I mean, I remember when Corbyn uh, and, the, and, the, and the leader's office came in. You used to walk into the leader's office in those first couple of months. There was a tumbleweed rolling through. There was no one there. There was no staff. And one of the reasons there were no staff was partly because, I think, an issue of trust, but also because, in many ways there was fun and games going on from the actual, you know, the party itself in terms of, you know, bringing people over. You know, that's a, it's well documented. So, you know, there are lots of reasons why we weren't in the kind of form that we should have been. But I think being honest in 2016 and saying there were things we could have done better is a world away from saying you weren't supporting Corbyn because I was. OK. Uh, anyone from this section got a question for... 
For Clive? Uh, yes, uh, right in the middle there at the bar. Uh, my name's Rachel, and my question is, you clearly have a view a wide-ranging tactical view now and for the future. What would you hope to see in your political lifetime? What do you think is the biggest achievement a Labour government could, could, yeah, could achieve? Well, there's an assumption in the question. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, first of all, it's winning. That's, uh, that's the first thing. And, and there's, a, there's a couple of things. Uh, let's put Brexit aside. I think, you know, let's make the assumption that Labour gets us into a place which is the closest possible relation to Europe or keeps us in Europe. Yeah, let's, let's just make that, let's make that assumption. And if we go on to the kind of meat, the meat, and, again, the meat and two veg of, of what I think is... <laughs> that was, no, that's you laughing, man. That's, what? No, no, what? You say, you you know say what? meat and veg? No, no, is it, 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 it says meat and two veg. That was just a mixed metaphor. Look, if we get down to you the pork what, sword... <laughs> I came down the stairs and I said, Clive Lewis, I'm from Matt Ford. And she said, oh, yeah, go down, they'll sort you out. <laughs> so I knew it's, it's going to be Finbar Saunders. So anyway, Finbar Saunders aside over here. Um, I think, so for me, PR, a, a, a written constitution, which I think we're going to need after coming out of Europe. Mm. Um, and I think, finally, I'm going to say the... There's so many things, National Health Service, but I'm going to say the National Education, National Education Service, and I'll tell you why. Because of the changing nature, changing nature of the 21st century and the economy and automation, AI and other things, a National Education Service, perhaps with a minimum basic income as well, something where people can reskill, retrain, um, I think how we as a country make that ch- make, you know, live up to that challenge is going to be critical but not just ourselves, you know, in the next 10, 20, 30 years, but our children and our grandchildren, and something which will, you know, be on a par with the National Health Service, but which will educate and train people, will be free for everyone to use to the best of their ability, and actually will go well beyond just training people for jobs. Actually, it'll be about arts and culture, being better human beings. That's a long-term plan that I see for the National Education Service. I think that will be critical, and if that can be established... I think people will look back on it in the same way we look back on the foundation of the NHS as something which was so needed and so critical uh, for the 21st century. OK. Are there any more... Are there, well, before we go upstairs, are there any more questions on the, on the lower level? Yes, right at the back. No, we're gonna, is there, does anyone on the balcony have a question? So I don't want to send uh, Tim running up there. Do you think a Macron-style situation could happen in the UK? I think it did in the Blair years. They're just a bit behind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, Macron, uh, Varoufakis, you know, um, the Greek, former Greek finance minister, uh, the night, uh, the week before the election, uh, he told me. So I phoned <coughs> him up and I said, "You have my complete support uh, for your." Your, you know, for the, your election bid against uh, Le Pen, Marine Le Pen. He said, but the day after, I'll be on the barricades, <laughs> you know, standing against you because I disagree with everything you stand for. And I think, look, I think what Macron is... Macron is, reminds me very much of a kind of Blair-like character. Yeah. Um, you know, he's young, he's fresh, very business-orientated. And, and I think he's trying to take on what he sees as kind of structural deficiencies in the French economy. I think, I think his approach is wrong. I think fundamentally France actually probably is in a better place the country in many ways to make the jump into the 21st century in certain ways. Um, but actually kind of mimicking what we did in the Thatcher years in terms of their labour laws, there may be changes needed, but I think, that, I think the way increasingly that the French people view him 
some of his kind of really clumsy footsteps mean that he now comes across as someone who holds in disdain the working class of France, uh, and actually he's now known as the kind of the, the business, the president of the business community, the president of this. And th- as a president, you want to be able to say, I speak for everyone. Uh, I think, you know, he's going to have a lot of hard work to win that back. But could you have, you know, uh, frankly, uh, uh, I think the essence of the question is a new party as well. You know, it's not just about Macron as, a, as, a, as an operator. The idea that he, he formed a new party and, it, and it, it, through him, won an election. Do you think that could happen here? If we have PR, I think, I think, I think the, the, the party political system we have is like, is like Blumange held in place by a kind of a, a, a straitjacket, if you want. It's all held in place. And I think it's, it's the first past the post voting system. <laughs> and if you, have, if you have a more proportional system, one where, you know, around about a million of the electorate in about 60 constituencies or less basically holds sway mm. over, you know, what is politically... Uh, what, what, is, what are the political issues of the day, then I think what you will see in this country is the potential for, you know, a, a thousand flowers to bloom, potentially. And I think if you have PR, then I think there's far more likelihood that we will see new parties develop, old parties fall apart. I like to think that the Labour Party will hold together. Um, there may be some people under PR who think that they can go their own way. Possibly, I don't know. But I like to think the Labour Party will stay together because I think if you look at where the centre of gravity of this country is, I think this country is a progressive country by and large. Uh, and I think the Labour Party could kind of position itself in a very good place and, and in, for many years, like in Sweden, dominate. OK, we've got time for one last question from the audience. Did anyone? Uh, yes, yes, because this gentleman had indicated before. Sort of pass the microphone down like a party. <laughs> a political party. Hey. On brand. You've um, talked well, several times in pro in favour of PR and Brown and Blair's failings on that front. Do you know that Jeremy and maybe even more importantly John McDonnell, are, are they in favour of it? Would, would a radical left agenda actually be possible under PR? Yes, uh, I, 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 John McDonnell is in favour of PR, which is, which is, I think it interests a lot of people. And I know that there are moves afoot in Unite, I think, to potentially have a debate on this because they don't have any policy on it. So it's, an, it's a, an idea, perhaps, whose time has come. And I think the other thing as well is to understand, and the reason I, I come to it from a pragmatic point of view politically as well, which is that, you know, if we do leave Europe in some form, many of the, you know, we may still be part of the ECJ, but we would have weakened the ties and the bonds to a very, which I think, a overall progressive organisation in terms of the ECJ, in terms of, you know, uh, environmental legislation, workers' rights. You know, it's got some things badly wrong, but overall, I think. And if we move away from that, my fear is that we begin to gravitate under a first-past-the-post system. We, at some stage, will gravitate towards America. And, I, and I, I personally don't want that. I think we've got more in common politically and culturally with Europe. So one of the things I think PR will do is it will enable us to basically stop the Tories from having and the establishment party from having a domination of this country once we've loosened the bonds with Europe, which they inevitably will. We don't know what they're going to look like, those bonds. They may be severed completely or they may be loosened. And my, my personal fear is that once we're out, they know we might get a Corbyn. You know, maybe, you know, when we've crashed the economy on Europe, we'll kind of toss the, you know, David, go, here, Corbyn, build your socialism out of that wreck there. And, and, and they, they're thinking, you know, five, give, it, give it three or five, three to five years and, you know, all the high expectations of a Corbyn government, they'll be, you know, they'll be out and we'll be back in and then we can really get to work on, you know, dismantling the NHS, dismantling, you know, the underpinnings of the welfare state, dismantling the kind of liberal left, 
culture uh, wars that the left have won, we can really begin to... And so I think what we need to do as a Labour government when we get into power is make sure that we've got a constitution, which is democratic, which is transparent, that we have a far more federal structure to keep Scotland on board, and that we have PR to stop, you know, an extreme party of any kind, any particular, from taking control of this country. And I, and I think that, to my mind, are some of the checks and balances that we will need to put in place if we have a Labour government. Uh, Clive, the final question of the night. It's the biggest political question of the year. It's one that we haven't dealt with yet. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> well, it was, in the, um, it was in the multiverse, and it's on my wiki page. And uh, I was asked by uh, a New Statesman journalist, um, and he said to me, uh, and obviously I've got track record, my, my, my sense of humour getting me into deep trouble. And he said to me, he said, uh, so you seem pretty confident about winning in 2015, winning the election against the Greens. You think you're going to win? And I said, well, you know, and the, you know, well, you know, look, I kind of believe in the multiverse, uh, and, uh, multiple realities. And you know, I like to think, like to hope that we're in a reality where I'll win. Of course, we could be in a reality, one of those multiverse realities, where I'm caught behind a goat with Ed Midaband at the other end. Uh, and of course, if we are, then I'm going to lose. And obviously... <laughs> That kind of, I remember when I told the Labour Party press officer, well, the, the phone just dropped. <laughs> Ed didn't come to Norwich that election. Um, uh, and so I think yeah, in the multiverse, that was probably the naughtiest thing that I did. But not this reality. No, I mean, you could have blagged, you, you, could, you know, because GOAT used to stand for government of all the talents. So you could have, <laughs> you could have said, actually, it was just a euphemism about Digby Jones. Perhaps not. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we come to the end of another fantastic night. I was hoping to announce who next month's guest is, but they wouldn't fully confirm this afternoon. But it is very exciting, and I will let you know on Twitter. Uh, the Christmas, we've got two Christmas specials now at the Leicester Square Theatre. On the 6th of December, it's Anna Subri and Nick Clegg. Uh, and on the 7th of December, a big guest to be announced. So the 6th is almost sold out. The 7th is on sale, and that's selling fast. And uh, guess for next year, uh, there are so many people who are now asking to do it, but I can't betray confidences until the point at which they do, but some very, very, very exciting names. Uh, as always, you're a phenomenal audience, and this show would not exist without you. Thank you so much for coming. I know a lot of people come regularly, and it, it means a great deal that we can put on this night, and I think it is uh, an important antidote uh, to the sorts of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, perhaps sometimes the, the, the abuse that's online and all the rest of it. It's important to be able to sit down together yeah. and, and talk in front of people who have different political views, and that's, that's really important. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming, but please give a huge thanks to a wonderful guest, Clive Lewis. There you go, Clive Lewis. Uh, and as promised, uh, a wide-ranging uh, discussion um, taking in his own uh, recent controversy, the controversy of others, and a, a sort of assessment of the British left, really. Um, and it's a perspective that actually... In, uh, in the political party you haven't really had for quite a while. I've had Labour MPs on, but maybe uh, none as left-wing as Clive. So it was great to have him on and, and, and great to sit down with him. Uh, the future shows, November's guest will be announced soon. That has already sold out. There are two Christmas specials in December now. On the 6th of December, these are both at the Leicester Square Theatre instead of the other palace. But on the 6th of December, I've got two guests, Anna Subri and Nick Clegg as well as live music from MP4. That has almost sold out, and as a result, we've uh, placed a second one on sale on the 7th of December. The guests I'm working on, as you would expect, they are of uh, a very high calibre. I cannot announce them yet, um, but as soon as the information is uh, OK to go, I'll announce it on Twitter. Um, you can follow me at Matt Ford. 
I am working on numerous very exciting guests and there are some really great names who have approached me to come on the show um, who I'll be booking in for next year. So I'll, I'll always announce them on Twitter. Um, the shows do sell out quite well in advance. So it, it, in a way, it's worth booking just just in case. But no matter whether you've heard of the guests or not, regardless of their profile, uh, they're always... Um, they're always great to hear from. You know, there is something different about people that do politics, and uh, particularly at a time now where it feels like more people are politicised than perhaps at any point in my lifetime. Uh, there's so many different voices uh, to get on the show. So, uh, really, um, 12 shows a year isn't enough. Um, but there we are. I will, uh, I will announce future guests as soon as. Um, I always forget to mention this. I'm on tour. I'm going to Gloucester and Exeter and various other places. Um, to see if I'm coming to a town near you, uh, log on to the website, mattford.com slash live. I've been doing this podcast for nearly five years, and I've been frightfully naive about how, really, the podcasting world works. So, if you could leave us a review on iTunes, this really helps f- let other people find the podcast and helps um, sort of promote it. So, if you could leave a review on there, that'd be very helpful. If you could click subscribe, if you haven't, and equally, tweet the link out to your friends or, or put other people onto it. Um... I've been sort of doing this as a cottage industry, really, but it's, um, I know other people that podcast who uh, are far more savvy at how the world works, the world of podcasting. So, um, yes, if you could hit subscribe, if you could encourage others to do so, and if you could leave uh, an iTunes review, that'd be very handy. As always, just thank you for downloading it. I can't believe it's been going nearly five years, um, but loads more great guests in the future, and I hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks very much. Ta-ra. Even on a budget... Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.